Welcome back to another Ag Watchers. I think a lot of people know that I don't give praise lightly, mainly because I'm Scottish. I've never had any praise in my life, so I don't like to give it out. So one of the, I don't like, don't like to use the word trailblazer or pioneer lightly, but I think Malcolm Bartholomew doesn't really need an introduction for pretty much anyone in Australian Ag. Malcolm, Malcolm trailblazed with, is uh, a pioneer of price discovery of market analysis from a time when that didn't really exist in Australia, I guess. There was no sort of market analysis in, in Australian ag to, to a large extent other than it was provided by probably A-Bears. And uh, Malcolm started back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's uh, unfortunate to hear that he's, he's retiring. Unfortunate for us, good for him. So Malcolm, probably that was a bit of a, a rubbish intro probably, but you can probably tell us a bit more. Uh, but thanks for coming along on what you just told us is your last official, feel, feels like you're a politician, it's your last official duty as uh, as, as leader of of price discovery and ag analysis. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Yes, it is, uh, this podcast is the last official appointment in my diary. Um, I finished off today with my last article for the Rural Press Group, which is my weekly bulletin, grain bulletin in the Stock Journal. And earlier this morning, uh, I finished off my last market tweet. I do two tweets a day and have done since 2013, covering uh, uh, Chicago wheat and, uh, and the canola market. And uh, I can tell you, my phone has been uh, dinging away all morning <laughs> since I sent out uh, the message saying, this is it, it's all over. And uh, it could be uh, um, hundreds of people have, have liked that tweet or come back in, which is... Uh, which I, I think is testament to this whole thing that you called uh, price discovery. And I'll, I'll just share a little story with you on, on how, how and why that started. But you are correct. My career did start with price discovery. And prior to, I think it's about 1988, there was really no need for price discovery in the Australian grain market because our major grains of wheat, barley and oats... What, 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 I, I might just hold you one, one second, Malcolm, because we do, if, with all of our guests, we do a bit of a, a, a test. Uh, we, we have uh, our... And a lot of our listeners would be offended if we didn't do it with you as yeah, well. Yeah, we, even, <laughs> even that, as, in, as important as, uh, as you are to the industry, we can't let you, you, can't let, let you can't, go. We can't yeah, let yeah. you off. Yeah. Uh, so so we, we do we do a, a psychological test of all of our guests to, <laughs> to, to make sure you're, you're all okay. Uh, so we do what we call the sixth sense, which is uh, we've been doing it for about half of our episodes now. <clears throat> We're going to fire six questions at you or six phrases or words. And you come back with us with your, uh, your first thought, you know, either a, one word or a short statement. And uh, so it's basically word association. And then that'll give us a good insight into, you know, whether whether everything's okay up there. So, Matt, do you want to start off? Yep. I'll fire away first. Grain marketing. Trouble. Single desk. Gone. Black pudding. Yuck. <laughs> Might have to stop the podcast right now, Andrew. <laughs> Risk management. Very important. Market transparency. Extremely important. Oil for food scandal. That was the start. 
of the end for single disc. Right. Well, I think that gives us a few things to to, to, to delve into later on. That's part of the psychological test. We'll, we'll pass that on to our psychiatrist and our team, and we'll get a report written for you to make sure everything's okay. I'll, I'll watch my inbox. <laughs> so, 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 Mark, before I rudely interrupted you, um, you were talking about the start of it, yeah? And that's what we're really fascinated to hear about is, is the start of this journey to from, from the, the early 90s when I was – six in 1991 uh, up up to just now 2022 and you're, and you're heading for retirement so tell us tell us how did it start what, why was price discovery important right uh, so we didn't need price discovery in the australian grain market prior to about 1988 because um our three major grains wheat barley and oats were run by government-backed single desks and really the only grains that had started to uh, trade in a cash market were the pulses so faber beans peas lupins chickpeas were the uh, were the ones but they were they were very much niche markets mm. and those uh, industries were just developing then the domestic market for wheat was deregulated in look it's either 88 or 89 not sure which, but it didn't really matter because um, there wasn't much happening until 1991 when I think there was a uh, projected shortage of wheat on the eastern seaboard. And so suddenly we actually had a cash price at every silo across uh, South Australia for the first time. And um, I was just talking to a farmer mate and I said to him, how are you going to know if the cash price is any good? He said... Um, you're my consultant, you'll tell me. I said, for two grand, I'll tell you every day for the next 10 weeks whether the uh, price is any good. And he said, you're way too expensive. So the business model formed in the one-hour drive home of bringing everyone that I knew had a fax machine, which is 10 people, and saying to them, I will tell you every day for the next 10 weeks if the price is any good, and I'll charge you 100 bucks. And they all came on. And so I think that was a Friday afternoon. So the next Monday... We started out with a price discovery uh, daily report and I just used to ring up the traders to find out what their, their price was. Well, in the, the, in the very first edition, it was just wheat um, because that's what I'd promised to do. Within three days, they all said, oh, look, we grow wheat, peas, barley, lentils, whatever. I, in fact, I don't think we had lentils back then. But um, And so we added, we very quickly added those um those prices to it and this is the first independent price discovery service i reckon um that was sort of made widely available and you know within a week or so we had about 80 clients and uh and it sort of uh, went on from there but that price discovery and it was really in the pulse market that really uh, drove that price discovery and it's where the first impact was actually felt so within two weeks the feedback came in that the all these um, traders had buyers who were on the road and they would just drive up at a, a farmer's driveway, find him in the paddock and say, look, our pea price is 220 bucks. What do you reckon? And the farmer would scratch his head and, and either make the sale or not make the sale and not know too much about what was going on. <laughs> yeah. But suddenly these guys were turning up and the farmers actually knew more about the market than the, than the, uh, the trade reps on the ground so, so they'd the, already had their facts and, and got the so information. Did you get a bit of, like, I'm just thinking, we've had a similar situation with fertilizer. 
Hmm. And, uh, that was one of the questions I was going to ask next about because, price transparency. Because because we we we've we've had a lot of people who we we talk about fertilizer a lot because we we find it interesting, and we've had a lot of people saying, like fertilizer salesmen saying, the farmers got a lot more questions. There are farmers asking more questions about the, the relative mm. value of it. When you first started doing that, you know, back with 80 people from a fax machine, did you start getting any flack from buyers or traders where, where they thought, well, they, they're too informed now? Yeah, yeah, we, well, we did. And um, it was one of the major legume buyers in South Australia. I, I just used to ring up every morning and ask the uh, whoever answered the phone, what, what's your pay price today? What's your paper bean price? And um, and they didn't know why I was doing it. I didn't actually tell them why I was doing it. And uh, anyway, after about 10 days, they worked out what was going on. So when I rang in one Monday morning, uh, they said, oh, the, the boss has told me not to talk to you. And I said, oh, well, I'd better talk to the boss. And um, he didn't want to talk to me either. So I thought, oh, that's fine. We'll just leave them out. And about a week later, they came back to me saying, can we go back on your list? Because they were the ones that weren't being quoted and other people were getting the business, not them. So, yeah, there was there was pushback. And then, and particularly uh, with wheat, for example, I, I formed an opinion that there was a close relationship between what happened on Chicago Board of Trade and what happened in wheat prices. Um, and I worked it out because I'm particularly clever in that in 1989, we had a reasonable wheat price. In 1990, the wheat price was a dog. In 1991, we had a reasonable wheat price. And our market fell by 60 bucks, nearly sent my little farm business broke. And I just noticed that um, Chicago had fallen and risen by exactly the same amount as the AWB pool return had, you know, year on year. So I established that relationship. And um, I got a lot of flack, a lot of flack from the people in uh, in um, the wheat industry at that time, you know, involved in managing a single desk. But then in April 1992, so just after I started all of this, they brought out the first daily indicator price, which you could contract against. You know, it was a forward contract, first time hmm. that you could forward sell uh, wheat in Australia. And um, within three days, it became very apparent that the price just went up and down in direct line with what happened on Chicago. So, so basically, however, they could hedge it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so, and so, um, yeah, we did get a lot of flack on on some of the stands that we took and what we did uh, right from the early days. But um, you know, there's still a strong relationship between what happens on Chicago and the price that that we get delivered into the silo, into our domestic market, for that matter. And so, that would have been like, like I'm just thinking about from our point of view, yeah, that we just. We, we can just pull down a data set. We've got an API that pulls on CBOT price, converts it to Aussie dollars a ton. Uh, we It's pretty easy for us, really. Like, as Matt and I are both analysts as well. Mm. Back back then, though, like, getting things like the CBOT price, you had to actually... There was no, there was no emails. There was no, there was no internet back then. No, you're, you're right. So I... Um... I very quickly, sort of in that process of getting going with wheat, um, and the other grains were all ticking along at the same time as well, but but particularly with wheat, because that is, was, and always will be, I think, in Australia, one of the big ones. Um, I formed a relationship with a futures broking firm in Melbourne. So to get futures prices, I just used to ring them 
and uh, and jot them down on a bit of paper and, and enter them in a spreadsheet. We did have <coughs> spreadsheets. I will trust me. We did have spreadsheets. You did have um, them, yep, yep. Very early on, though, and uh, fairly course, rudimentary, fairly rudimentary spreadsheets, I'd imagine. Though. Well, they were. They could add, add, divide, multiply, and subtract. I think, but um, which, which is pretty much the same as ours now. <laughs> yeah. So the, the the very first or the first one I used was a, a spreadsheet called SuperCalc and. I'd had a bit of an academic career, so I'd actually been exposed to these tools uh, quite mm. early on. But you're right, there was no internet and there was no email. So I'd, it was all done by phone. And fax, fax machines were very early too. I mean, fax machines had only been around for a couple of years. And in fact, to expand our uh, client base, we actually sold packages of a fax machine and <laughs> you've got a subscription. And the fax machine used to turn up in the mail. Would you like fries with that? That's when you were saying about it was 91. I was doing my first year of uni, and I remember um, at the time the web was just pretty new as well. And mm. they introduced us to this thing called a browser, and it was actually mm. Netscape, which I don't think exists anymore. And um, I remember, and then they said, Oh, as part of this new internet thing, we're going to give you this thing called an email, right? Mm. Um, and it was ba- it was from the university, basically, was the domain or whatever. And that's how your yeah. tutor's going to keep in touch with you. And I remember I remember looking at it as a 19-year-old going, This email, this email is never gonna take off. This that. is never gonna take off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my Who's my first yeah, yeah, my yeah. first browser wasn't actually associated with the World Wide Web, as it were. Um, and those browsers, I think we were we were just pre just pre that or before they became mainstream. So I had a service called CompuServe. CompuServe, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And I could download um, the um, AAP reports. I mean, you could download a report on what happened on Chicago that reads very similar to the daily market wires that that come out through the, the various news services uh, today. So I had this CompuServe service and it was only, look, I can't quite remember when it was, probably 93 or 94 that we transitioned over to um, a web-based and, and Netscape was the first browser. And uh, and then that that sort of opened up. But um, that CompuServe service was uh, was very valuable to me in the early days. And look, looks, I mean, it was just a standalone um, web thing. It just wasn't the World Wide Web. It was sort of everyone had their own proprietary system that they were using. One, one, of, the, one of the, like in, in the past, uh, you obviously did faxes back then. Just a quick question: Do you still send faxes? No. Have you? So, faxes because, were... because we've had requests in the last three years in in a previous company and this company to send on fax. Right. And, okay. And and, uh, and and we used to send. We used to send. I remember coming to Australia when and so that was 2010, and that was with Cargill at the time. And we were still sending faxes out as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that was that's not that long ago either, really. No. So. Well, that's the other way of getting information. Um, there were fax services <clears> where you could dial in the number and then push the hash code and a market report would spit back at you. So that okay. was uh, another distribution technique. But, yeah, look, faxing was um, – we either used to um, – uh, well, I had a printing machine in the corner of the office and, and we used to print these things and send them out by mail as well as by fax. But – Faxing was interesting because in the first uh, year, in that, that first harvest, I used to send a, a one-page fax one after the other to 80 people. I'd just stand in the corner of the bedroom, actually, where it was set up at the time <laughs> in a half-built house, and i just dial in the number and hit send and 
do that 80 times in a row. Right. Then when we when we started to get serious, um, a digital phone exchange was put in, and that allowed me to. Um, that was even before the digital one, actually. So I, I, you could buy fax machines that had memories. Each fax machine could remember 60 numbers. So I got Telstra to plough in 12 phone lines into my house, which they did free of charge back then because it was a service obligation. So I've got still got 12 phone lines that come into my, into my house. And I lined up these fax machines um, alongside each other because I could load the newsletter in push the button and sequentially one after the other, it would go to 60 numbers, but I could at least have two or three machines cranking out at the same time. Then they put in a digital exchange and that then allowed me to go to fax broadcasting. And uh, at one stage we were the largest fax client for uh, Telstra or Telecom, whatever they called themselves back then. And our phone bill was about, uh, got up to about $120,000 a year, just sending out faxes. Jeez. And did you think at the time, look at this fantastic technology where I can send out all this information so easily? <laughs> well, it was, it was fantastic until we got a, an election and then the government overtook me as the largest user and they used to get priority. So my jobs used to get bumped. And so suddenly farmers fax machines, you know, down the hallway from where the baby's sleeping were going up at three o'clock in the morning because my, uh, my um, newsletter had been bumped down the queue just in these spikes in faxing with elections. And uh, anyway, I worked with a Telstra guy to overcome that problem and we worked out how to get ourselves always at the top of the queue. So, <laughs> it so, was an interesting exercise. So, so you're in, in the early 90s, you set up this business and it sounds like it moved pretty quickly, pr- quicker yeah. than you expected? Or? Um, well, it's interesting because at the end of that first harvest where I had 80 clients, I, I, I worked out that because I was a farmer myself and I needed, I knew what information I needed. So I sent out a, uh, um, uh, the idea that it was going to be this weekly report, and, I, um, and a lot of half the people took it on because I think I charged them like two hundred and eighty dollars a year, something like that. Half the people took me on. The other half said they didn't want it, and I got straight back to them and said, "I know you don't want it, but you actually need it." <laughs> and um, and so I was able to build a service based on what I needed in my business, and it actually covered wool and um, wool and grains and uh, and then we needed uh, coverage of the futures market a bit more specifically. So we actually had three newsletters on the go um, by the end of 1992. And yes, it did grow. And part of that was because um, the Rural Press Group that I had just finished up with today as well, they approached me to put a column in the Stock Journal not long after I'd started a newsletter, you know, within weeks of starting up. And so we were able to use that column so we just started disseminating this information free, you know, commentary and, and price discovery free. And that whetted the appetite of a lot of farmers. So they started to get in touch with me direct. So um, this whole process, you know, comes right back to price discovery. So it was, you know, who's paying what price, when, where. Then the newsletter added the why. Then we took it one step further and said, well, how? And that was, you know, we, we then got into training of people of how to use forward markets, how to use put options, how to use call options. You know, this in the early 90s, we had, we had growers that understood how to use put options, had no idea what a futures contract was. And yet a put option was against a futures contract. But we ran two-day workshops all over Australia just to, um, to spread the message. But there was a real hunger, a real thirst 
for because people worked out they didn't need this. So in some ways it was surprising, but we we worked really hard to drive that growth um, right across Australia in the end. Yeah. There still is. I think there still is. So do you think, Malcolm, a, a, a need for that information and knowledge? Andrew and I were a couple of, what, a fortnight ago, we were out on a web, webinar presentation thing or so, an in-person one, and amongst what was about 70-odd growers in that region. And, and there was only what, one or two that were familiar with um, you know, the, the kind of hedging products that are available, um, let alone any that have used them. Do, do you think there's enough knowledge in that space around how to effectively kind of manage risk? No, we've lost the skill set. So back, you know, by 1996, I had personally trained a thousand growers across Southern Australia, Victoria and South Australia. And they, and, and a large percentage of them were actively knew what they were doing and were actively trading um, options. Um, I don't I don't think there's anywhere near the uh, that level of understanding now. I mean, we've, we've lost that um for, for various reasons it's uh, it's gone backwards and um and part of that was um you know because we moved from swaps uh from options you know swaps came along and in the 2000s and you know we were instrumental in in showing how to use those products and in 2007 a lot of people lost a lot of money with swaps mm. and um you know, the lessons learned was, you know, okay, you forward sell, doesn't matter how you do it. The market goes up, you miss out. It's just that with a forward contract, the money um, money still lands in your account. You still deliver against a lousy contract, you still get paid. So um, it got covered up within most businesses, the fact that they'd stuffed up on their forward sale. But if you had a swap, you actually had to yes, write the check. check. So it was yeah. very, and there were serious discussions being held around kitchen tables. And, uh, I mean, the answer to that was you forward sell, the market goes up, you go back in and forward sell the next year. And so people that followed through with the strategy um, cleaned up, but a heap of people didn't for whatever reasons. And so they walked right away from any of these tools. And, um, and so the next generation coming along hasn't been exposed either. And I'm not sure. And then the financial services legislation came in there trying to protect consumers from themselves actually made it hard, really hard for individuals to be able to get themselves educated and, uh, and for service providers to do it. It all became too hard. So through a heap of circumstances, the skill set has been lost by a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah, because one of, and, it, and that memory of 2007 is, is definitely fresh in people's minds. And, and, that last generations as well mm. you know, and, and we, we spoke to people as part of my studies at, at uni as well I spoke to people and they used to say we're not going to use financial products because remember what happened in 1984 oh, right yep with yeah. my with my uh, with my interest rate uh, oh, the Swiss loans I got I got screwed over by that I'm never going to use one of these products again and you know yeah. that's 84 that was before I was born and People still remember that, and people still remember 2007. That's not that long ago, really. Mm. But it's and people will remember 2021 for the same reason. But um, yeah, absolutely. But there are people that were in the market in 2021, caught the same way. The market shot up, um, but they know what to do. You know, they're, they're back in the market now. Um, well, they know they should have been. If they, and there's been an, an ideal opportunity to get back in the market. Absolutely, 100. percent you, you, you jump, you forward sell when the market is really, um, sorry, you, you forward sell when the, um, 
when the market is high. If the market goes higher, that's not when you jump off. You, you, you stay on. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, you don't thought sellers when the market drops right away and it's a lousy price. You don't lock that in. But, well, you, you want to lock in a margin if you can. Yeah, if, yeah. if you can lock in high futures and then leave basis yeah. and hopefully basis returns to normal pricing levels and then bish, yeah. bash, bosh. Yeah. But, but I think the, the issue is that there's not enough people, like you say, understanding them. But, but going, going back a tick from, from 2007, that sort of a period, we had deregulation. Mm. And... What was what was the what do you, do you think we have a discussion all the time with farmers about whether it was good or bad? I I, I personally think and I think the data looks to show that it was good for farmers deregulation. Yeah. Okay. So what was happening in uh, in the last phase of the single desk? The single desk was being promoted as a, a risk management tool, which it wasn't. You know, because quite clearly, if the uh, if the global market fell by hundred dollars from one season to the next. The so-called risk management tool, the pool, um, delivered a price that was $100 a ton lower. So um, a lot of the risk management tools that we're using, put options and swaps, worked exceptionally well in conjunction with the single desk because the single desk did not actually manage price risk at all, not from one year to the next. Um, you know, once the grain was in the bin, sure, the single desk operated to uh, to provide some insulation. But I, I could establish that. Um, whichever way the market moved from the 1st of December to the 30th of May, wherever Chicago went, the AW pool went by about 50%. So if it went down and we lost half half the price fall, if it went up, we only captured half the price fall. So there was some risk management once the grain was in the bin. But from one season to the next, there was zero price risk management embodied in a... Uh, uh, why, the, why, the... why do you think that was because they weren't allowed to because they were treated as separate entities each pool or yeah each pool was a separate entity we think and um yeah and 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 that just it just wasn't a priority of the i mean that's one of the things about a single desk the single desk um the managers of that determined what they thought was good for growers and every grower had to put up with their decision hmm. So, um, and the decision of a single desk was that every grower had to receive exactly the same price for their wheat as every other grower across Australia. And that became untenable. You have a deregulated financial market and other markets were deregulating, and yet we had a highly regulated market for our product. And um, if I'd just gone out and bought a farm and had a big mortgage, I actually needed a different price for my wheat than my neighbour who had not done that. And... In the early days of the single desk, it was fairly homogenous. Most farm businesses were the same. We were all a similar size um, uh, coming out of the Second World War yeah. through the 50s and 60s. Farms were the same size. If you needed a new tractor, you saved up and bought it when you had the money. Um, one size did fit all. But when we started deregulating the markets, exchange rates and uh, financial markets, then people started to change. So the large farms were no longer just the inherited farms. Some of the large farms became farms that had been put together by debt financing. Mm. And one price fits all um, was no longer appropriate. Now, I don't, that's that's the way I explained it. I don't know that a lot of people really understood what was happening to them, but the single desk had to go because it was a regulated price in a deregulated market. Same thing happened in the wool industry. Mm. The wool industry blew itself apart to achieve deregulation. At least the grain industries haven't had to do that. I don't no. think the grain industry blew apart. The single desks um, uh, disappeared. 
Um, but we didn't blow ourselves apart, not like the wool industry ended up doing. And it's interesting because you do speak to some people who were ardent supporters of the single desk. And, 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 still, and, are, and still are, probably, are they? Yeah, but you also speak to some who aren't supporters of a single desk and, and were, were out there sort of protesting against it, who now say, yeah, it's done, it's over with, and it's actually been pretty good for us. So Yeah, I, I came up with an alternative model for the single desk, you know, because I, I got painted into a corner as, as being anti-single desk. I wasn't anti-single desk, but I, I came up with an alternative way forward, and I managed to get that through to the highest levels of government um, in Canberra. And um, I remember to this day um, some of the key players, the key politicians saying me to my face, we will, your model will be what we end up doing. But in the meantime, we are going for uh, no change. And then the government lost the election and it all went out the window uh, very rapidly. So we could have had a different model. I, I was more for deregulating the products that were being offered back to growers on the back of maybe an organised uh, way of selling Australia's crop into the international market. But you see, the single desk did things like, uh, and made decisions on behalf of growers, they said, oh, the market into Japan is really important to us. So when we have a drought in Australia and the um, uh, domestic price is going bunter, we even had grain imported, AWB would still say, well, no, we're holding grain back to uh, deliver into the Japanese export market because we, we need to maintain our market share. Yep. And, uh, and so the domestic price might have been 300 bucks a tonne, the uh, export price might have been 200. The pool was clipping the ticket for 200. Um, everyone needed 300 because they were having a drought. And um, the loss of the single desk, getting rid of the single desk, um, well, I'll go back. So every grower, whether they liked it or not, whether it was good for their business or not, had to live with that decision. Yep. Um, once the single desk was gone, um, that type of thing went out the window because growers could say, well, no, we actually don't want to take 200 bucks a tonne just so that we can deliver wheat to Japan in 12 months' time. We want 300 bucks now so that I survive in farming. Yeah, so you got you got that. I guess it's, it's sort of pro-choice, isn't it? Really, because I remember there was a pool. There was a pool run in the mid 2010s by Emerald. I think at one point they had sort of come up with a sort of a. Because I actually don't think pooling is a particularly bad idea if it's done right. And and they had uh, this idea of different sort of hedging profiles. I think I can't remember what they called them, but basically you could be. You know, price risk, price risk appetite or something. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was sort of, and, and you could you could sort of have your hedging, you know, from seeding onwards. You could have during harvest or or an average one, which was quite an interesting. One. But I don't think it Emerald obviously got out of pools after their issues in WA. But that was the sort of thing I liked of a pool is the ability to choose based on your own circumstances. Yeah, and I think there's um, the other way of doing it, which um, a couple of people still do, I think, is that they um, you can either choose a, a level of, of risk management within the pool product that you choose, or you can um, you are advised on how to how to um, hedge, you know, for your own business against the the pool that you are committing to go into. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, I thought deregulation would result in um, a lot of those sorts of products coming forward. But when the market deregulated, there seemed to be this attitude, let's try and show the growers that nothing has changed. 
And so I think that stifled a lot of innovation uh, to the point that when people did try and innovate, it was too late, couldn't really add value, um, you know, just... So we were, we're where we are now without, uh, without any, any pools much to, to speak of. And, um, but I think farmers are... Farmers have, like we were talking a little bit before about the risk management and the lack of skills there, but I think where farmers have developed their skills is in um, harvesting the grain, the logistics of it on farm, mm. storing on farm, warehousing, selling, selling post-harvest. They still take some unnecessary price risks in that post-harvest market, don't necessarily read the market correctly, but, um, but I think there has been a, a big skill set developed there and it, and it fits quite nicely the notion of you know I, I won't sell it until I've got it in the bin type thing so I think we have developed a skill set in the post-harvest market but it still leaves businesses exposed in that um, in that you know from when you make the decision to plant the crop until you the header moves in that is where some of the biggest price risks are still um, I guess you could call it um, concrete risk management in the sense that it's kind of using infrastructure to risk manage and storage rather than, you know, kind of a futures market or something like that. To yeah, and I, and I think growers have become quite skilled at um, um, sorting out a supply chain which suits suits their business and, and cuts costs. And so, you know, a lot of grain goes direct from farm into end users um, right through the year. Um, even in WA, you know, a little bit of that happens. But um, but where the where it ha- the market hasn't developed, and and where I think growers have been let down, is that the supply chain into the export market is still pretty traditional. You know, the the, the system is still set up with you harvest it, you take it to your local depot, um, you warehouse it or sell it for cash on the day, and then it just shoots off down and onto a boat and and out. And, and it still very much hinges around that legacy bulk storage system. And even people like in South Australia, we're watching it in real time where on Air Peninsula we've, mm. got, uh, you know, we've got some competition coming into the market, but they're still trying to do it the same old way. Oh, let's have some centralised storage and you tip it in there straight off the header. And uh, whereas I think, I think we've become far more innovative and have a direct line from from farm to export during the year. So you store actually store it on farm rather than in centralised storage. And, and I think that's where we haven't really developed uh, the industry to a level where that type of uh, system works so that those who are loading a ship know what they're going to get in terms of quality. Those delivering uh, off farm know exactly what they are delivering when they uh, turn up with their, their truck at the uh, receivable point. What, what about other technologies as well? Like one of the things that we saw like one of the reasons I decided I was a grain merchant before and one of the reasons I decided that I didn't want to be a grain merchant anymore was uh, and Nathan doesn't like me saying this but was clear grain in that I saw that over over time there won't be much need for a grain merchant to go out there speaking to farmers and, and buying their grain because it will all be electronic eventually what, what do you think mm. about things like clear grain do you think it's it's making a big inroad and no, it's not making as big an inroad as it could have or should have, in my view. Look, when that first came out, see, I had no skin in the game of the transaction. I have always run a business where I do not make money out of the transaction. And um, um, I'm probably 
uh, and allied with that was Pro Pharma, which uh, um, took over our business and I ran Pro Pharma for a while. But outside of that, everyone else has a business model which is involved in making money out of the transaction. We had a non-transactional business model and so we could talk to anyone. So when Clear Grain first started up, their rule was um, a broker had to do the transaction on behalf of the grower. And they got, I don't know, 20 of us in a room. And I wasn't a grain trader, so they were doing these simulated exercises. And I had no idea what was going on, but all these guys that are screen jockeys doing trades, they blitzed it all. And, and I felt, uh, oh, geez, um, uh, a bit out of it. Um, but those brokers, it was a direct challenge to their business model, a yes. direct challenge. And so they did not embrace it. I was the only one that embraced it. Um, they did a faux uh, trade on it just to see if the system worked. And two weeks later, one of my clients did the first genuine no hands, well, I had to do the uh, do the actual transaction, but it was you know not pushed by anyone. It was just a completely independent trade on on clear. I championed um, that platform because um, it really it really did. I, in my in my view, I had the potential to open up transparency on both volumes. You know what grain is trading where in real time and at what price. I mean, this is this is just a fantastic transparency that. Um, could be unlocked. Anyway, the developers of it, and, and I'll declare my interest here in that um, the New Zealand Stock Exchange bought Pro Farmer Newsletter. When Clear Grain started up, within the first year, I worked out that, well, probably something like NZX should buy it, and they did. So New Zealand Stock Exchange bought Clear Grain Exchange. Then they bought my newsletter business. So I ended up working in Melbourne um, in the same room as Clear Grain Exchange and, and everything, so I, I tried to um, I tried to uh, you know do a uh, do my best. I mean that started up also. They had free install pricing and growers sell track, so the the pricing that we had to work out for a grower to sell was not what a grower was used to selling it. It was a different point in the supply chain, so uh, that that um, created a complexity and. Um, because the developers of Clear thought that it was a tool that the trade would use. I saw it as a tool that the growers would use. It, you know, the benefits flowed to the grower. And um, anyway, uh, it, it is where it is now. And it, look, it's a very successful business. It's, it's the largest, uh, my mail is that the largest and most successful online grain trading platform in the world. And it, and it continues to grow. But it should be millions and millions of tons per annum not one or two or three millions per annum it should be it should be 10 it should be 50 percent of the 50 percent of the australian crop should be transacted on a platform like that one the point malcolm you're making about your model uh, traditionally you know not being um not earning in revenue from the volumes you know like a, like a broker would earn um isn't that like that, that's an inherent risk, isn't it, in, in, in taking advice, I guess, from a producer perspective. If you're, if you're taking advice from, from someone that's um, got, got a benefit in terms of whether yeah, you transact like, or if, not. Like, like if, Matt, if, you're, if you're sort of a bit like that real estate agent, yeah? Yeah, well, if you're, I mean, the, I, be, I, the best price, the best time to sell a house is now. I've spent probably um, the largest percentage of my time telling people not to sell. 
And that didn't impact my, you know, but if you're a broker and you're telling growers not to sell, well, you've got no income. You've got absolutely no income. So look, a broker does a good job of getting the best price on the day. And they might, and they can generate good news uh, market-wise, and they had access to more market intelligence than I ever did um, because they are actually in the marketplace talking to, 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 to the trade, export and domestic all the time. Um, but, um, but there was a financial incentive to trade every day, where, uh, whereas I could say, no, no, don't sell, don't sell. I mean, we could go for weeks and weeks and weeks. Like, don't sell, don't sell, don't sell. And, and look, I think there's a great role for brokers as well. Like, absolutely. And that doesn't mean that they can't use clear either. But I've got a friend of mine and she she's a grain broker. And she's what I consider to be pretty old school in terms of brokerage. And she doesn't provide any information on markets at all. She doesn't have any advice to give on whether it's the right time to sell. But on that day when you want to sell, she'll try and find you the best price. But she'll yeah. also deal with the logistics, with, you know, mm. when that truck doesn't arrive. So for $2 a ton, you know, sorting the trucks out and all that kind of stuff is probably money for jam, in my view. But when it comes to market intelligence, it's, it's not my ball game. Well, that's, mm. that's the point, that was the point that, I'm making, right? That's, that, a, that's that, the point of a broker. Yeah, you, you, you get the best broker you can that's going to get the best price on the day, but you don't rely on them for the advice of when to time it. You get the best price you can from using your favourite livestock um, agent, but you yep. don't necessarily rely on them for market advice. And what you, the people you should be relying on for market advice are people that are independent and you know and can show they've got a reasonably good view of where things are heading. I would have thought. Yeah, um, uh, no, that, 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 that's right. And I think the 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 very um, best of our brokers know the most about the marketplace at any point in time. And they use that, you know, to help their big clients. You know, they use it to help individual clients. So they, um, yeah, and, and and they use it to to extract the best price on, on any given day. And But at the farm level, um, most farmers need a bit more than that. They actually need a, um, they need someone to find the best price on the day and they need someone to help with the uh, logistics and execution of the contracts. But they also need some market information and analysis to be able to uh, form their own their own marketing plan that you know that suits their business. So I always felt that um, that um, growers should have been subscribing to something like the services I had, alongside making use of a broker, and uh, and it just puts a little bit of tension in the system. So you know they could come back to me and say, well, the broker reckons this and. And and I could I could you know think about it and say well yeah I think the broker's right or or, or no I don't think he's right for or who's right, uh, they are right because of, of, of these reasons but you know at the end of the day the decision is yours so one of the things I've been able to navigate quite successfully is that even though I put out opinions and say what I think people should do I've always made it clear the decision is yours mm. and uh, if you make a decision and it goes bad well you have to own that decision. And I've tried to lay out all the available information and uh, and then it's up to you. So we have to, part of my role was empowering people to be able to make decisions, um, feeding them information, analysis and opinion, and then empowering them so that they could make their own decisions and then they could live with those decisions in their, in their business. And so I guess we're sort of, uh, you're coming to retirement. 
what, mm. what, one thing, if, you, if you're looking for ideas for retirement, one of those would be, I think you should write a book on, on, on the grains industry over the last 30 years. I think it'd be interesting. <laughs> uh, but, but secondly, do you think the industry, what do you think the biggest challenges for the industry are next 10 years or so? Oh, well, I think, uh, I think basic transparency is one of the biggest issues. So we see market failure. We actually see market failure, and we've been banging on about this. There's been a group banging on about it since the end of the single desk. But, you know, for example, in 2018 or 19, probably <coughs> it was in 2019, I think, so the third year of the big drought in, yeah. uh, in New South Wales, and... Um, and the price in New South Wales got up to a point where, you know, grain had to come from somewhere. It's either going to be imported from overseas or it was going to come in from, from South Australia. You know, at the same time that they were running out of grain on the East Coast, there had been shipments from that harvest already gone to the export market. You've got to say, why? Why did that go to export when there was always going to be a shortage on the East Coast? Yeah. So they, uh, um, and in South Australia, a lot of that grain was, uh, you know, earmarked for export. And anyway, people came into South Australia and started to buy grain and they put it on trains and they could make it work. You know, a train from Port Pirie or Gladstone or Crystal Brook or Two Worlds or, uh, sorry, um, uh, Bowman's, a train from those sites in South Australia going to a Moree or a Gunnedah or a Toowoomba was a lot more efficient than uh, a boatload landing in Brisbane and having to be unloaded and then put on yeah. trucks and taken to where it was actually needed because a lot of this grain was needed not near those, those ports. To cut a long story short, too much grain got committed for that domestic market. And, uh, and so the price in South Australia shot up. So South Australia had some of the, the highest grain prices in the country because they'd, they'd overcommitted to either export and or the domestic market. There wasn't transparency in stocks and supply to prevent that happening. At a micro level, um, a few years ago, um, there was a shortage of durum wheat in Australia and uh, York Peninsula you know, produced, uh, produced a fair whack of durum wheat and it was purchased into um, and, and growers warehoused it down at Maitland and, and so on. And the local pasta maker was trying to secure durum and he just couldn't get any. And he had no idea uh, whether there was any still unsold or not. And so he put up the white flag and um, I think they started using hard wheat and put a bit of egg yolk in it for the colouring to make their pasta. <laughs> and the, and the, the durum price in Australia collapsed. There was durum there. There were growers holding out because they'd heard there was a world shortage. They wanted a, a, a higher price, but no, no one knew they were holding that grain. No one knew they were holding it. So the price went up, up, up. They still didn't sell. They, they, they thought, well, the market works, got a high price, none's coming out. That means supply and demand, there's no supply. So they just pulled out and these guys got left holding worthless durum in a year when it was needed. And Matt, we had that discussion last week about Noodle Week in <laughs> yeah. 2010 in Western Australia. Mm. Same sort of thing was happening uh, with, with the Korean blend. So the, yeah. Yeah, so exactly. the, so, so the noodle, noodle farmer following me every single day, I, I'd only just come to the country. Uh, the price was increasing every single day but the the target was increasing as well so they were happy to sell at 350 and then when it got to 350 suddenly it was 400 then it was 450 and mm. so so the, so the green-eyed monster came along and then it got to 500 and something and the koreans i think changed their blend mm. so they're using less noodle wheat more asw and the market collapses 40 50 dollars mm. 
every day until it was again you just had the same as everyone else it was just mm. it was no longer noodle wheat it was just wheat and so, yeah. so you lost that premium so you know that that uh, market transparency and speed I, I can remember back in the early days uh, chickpeas because we we're talking about the technology so in the early days i uh, particularly during harvest i used to get the prices um that were going to be posted at the silo the next day i used to get them the night before um Osbolk here in South Australia um, saw what I was doing and they, they actually offered to send me a fax with the price on. I got a 100-page fax about 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock every night during harvest and that was tomorrow's prices. And one night I was sitting there, um, it was actually reasonably early in the evening. For some reason I picked up that the chickpea price was going to drop by 70 bucks a tonne. I was able to get the message out to enough growers who had chickpeas to um, ring up and sell right now yeah and they did and they you know some of the last trades before you know a few hours later the market dropped by by 70 bucks so look yeah the, the risks for the industry are transparency so there's transparency on supply um demand is reasonably transparent i think we can we can work that out but supply um no it's very very opaque and, and I think um, price discovery, I think we used to be able to discover prices and disseminate it, um, even if it was just via fax or email. And then, uh, you know, like in 2009 or 10, I started doing a, an SMS, daily SMS to get prices out. Um, I think we could, we could discover prices and get them distributed much more efficiently than is now currently the case. Everyone's trying to get in. So, you know, the marketplace tries to knock people like me out of business. And so, you know, the uh, the grain handlers have got into, you know, um, uh, sending out uh, prices. Every every merchant sends out the price. But And the ability for someone to do what I did just seems not to be there. So I think, I think we don't have particularly good price transparency. I think we were doing it better. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was much easier. Transparency all the way around was a lot better. So I see that as a risk for the industry moving forward. And that's you're one probably, of the things. You're probably so, getting so, a... Sorry, so, go, mate. Sorry, I was just saying that's one of the issues that, that we see is this sort of asymmetry of information where there's been a period where there was a lot of information held by the buyer and the trader. And then there was a period where it was almost equal. But then we see now there's probably another period where the information flow is more heavily in favor of the trader or the buyer than, mm. than the grower. There's not, there's not a symmetry of that information flow, which is, I guess, a concern. And that's not, not just in, in grains, in, in a lot of industries, meat, wool, or maybe not so much wool, uh, but definitely meat, fertilizers, chemicals, that type of thing. So that's what... what so, so I, I had quite a successful wool newsletter, not that... I was doing anything. I, I just get the industry weekly market reports and I just built a database and started analysing the data. And so when uh, we'd get a, uh, a projection, you know, ABS would come out with a forecast or the Wool Corporation come out with a forecast, what they thought the EMI would average or trade up to over the next 12 months. And I would, I would look at it and I would make statements like, yeah, no, you guys have got all the information. You know what you're doing. But what you are asking the market to do is something that it has never, ever done before. So why do you think the market will behave in a way it has never behaved before? 
And if they could come up with a plausible answer, you'd run with it. If you couldn't, they couldn't come up with a plausible answer, then you'd say, well, okay, this is what I reckon the market's going to do based on previous behaviour because you can't convince me that it's going to be any different. And that was quite a successful um, uh, successful uh, way of doing it. And, and again, in transparency. So I could analyse out the market and I could actually value individual growers' wool clips just from you know, the market reports without having seen the wool. And we'd get pretty close to the mark. So again, that was price transparency. You know, what is an individual grower's clip actually worth? We could answer that question, you know, plus or minus 10%, maybe, maybe 15%. But when the buyer turned up on the door, um, the grower the grower was fully informed as to what their clips should be worth. So it got to the point where some of the major private wool buyers would not go into the field until they had seen what I was telling wool growers yeah. so that they could go in as equipped as the grower they were going to see. Now, this is the people right in the core of the wool industry. Um, you know, the South African Wool Board was getting our wool newsletter, the major uh, wool um, importers overseas in in um, UK, France, uh, not so much Japan or China. I think they were they were they were subscribing to the, this wool report because it gave them something that they weren't getting from somewhere else. I guess Andrew made the point before, just Malcolm, around that kind of shift of asymmetry of information away from the the producer end a bit more towards the trade. I guess, and and that's true of a few markets, like you said. Um, I, I kind of heard your phone buzzing a little bit before with the podcast. I assume you've been getting a lot of calls from clients today lamenting uh, your decision to leave the market. Um, what are they going to What are they going to do if, if, if a service like yourself is not available? Uh, it even push, pushes that asymmetry even further uh, one way. How are they going to cope without your uh, without your uh, information, but, but, mate? On, on reflection, as, on, on reflection as well. I think one of the one of the other things as well. We've we've actually got like my background is actually IT. Uh, way back when and I sort of see actually I'm just thinking about what I said before about an asymmetry of information but there's also an asymmetry of information there's also too much information as well yeah there's 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 there's, like I love social media and uh, I love I love reading a lot of information but there's also a lot of information out there and I think that is a challenge. That is equally as big a challenge. Well, no, that, that, that is a challenge. But that's been the case for a long time. So particularly, go right back to when, uh, you know, the internet started taking off and everyone got, got their web browsers. So all of my clients could actually find all of the information that I could find. I, I had nothing special. I, I, I just... Um, so they could do it themselves. So some some people chose to do that. They chose to get to, you know to check Chicago every morning and um and and check all the market reports themselves. The service I was offering was I'd say look, every business needs to do that. You can actually outsource it. I'll do it for you. Um, I'll collect all that data every day and I'll present it to you. And on top of that, I will also give you some analysis. So really, the only thing that they couldn't do themselves without a lot of time was was a little bit of analysis and opinion that I threw in on top of it. But the rest of it, yep. But because there's such an overload of information, I think the um, the you know outsourcing it to someone with a service like I provided for many years, and it's still provided by um, um, you know, legacy pro- products by Pro Farmer, I guess, and a few others out there. Um, that's just outsourcing to work your way through this overload of information. And if you think you can do it yourself, I think you're kidding. 
Um, I think I guess it's a bit way like to handle this gross overload of information is to outsource the collection of it and get it delivered in a, a usable form. Same as you don't outs you outsource your accountancy, you outsource your agronomy. Like it's just just yeah. another thing. But, so but Matt Matt was making a point about you know um, why my phone's been going off the hook and so on. So in two thousand and um, Two thousand and twelve, I think it was. I decided to do a daily tweet, and I've always um, Australian farmers sell their wheat in Australian dollars, and so I've always converted Chicago into Australian dollars. And I, I've, so every day for since two thousand and twelve, I've tweeted the daily movement in Chicago in Australian dollars, and just picked up two or three dot points. And uh, every week when I do my weekly newsletter, I scroll, th scroll through those tweets and, and that becomes my list of dot points yeah. over the last last week. That's how you that's how I've uh, put that together. So this morning when I send out that no more on the tweets, that's what's been happening. That, that, it's hundreds have now come in from all over the world of, of people just saying, well, thanks for the service or, geez, I don't know what we're going to do now or, or whatever, or, or just, just liking, acknowledging the fact that um, it has been a, a free service. I never monetized that tweet. It's just been a free service. Um, and why was it free? Well, I had to do that work anyway to, to be able to write a weekly newsletter. So doing it as a tweet would just instill the discipline to check the markets every day of the year. And now you're wondering why I need to retire every day. <laughs> that is why I need to retire after 30 Years. It does sound for me though that the free service aspect, because us with the obviously it's not part of this podcast, but the Thomas Alder Markets website is is an absolutely free service, and we we always um, have difficulty when we're when we're presenting to farmers to explain to them that no that that's we're not expecting to there's no catch there, you know there's, mm. it's a service we're offering you know as part of we're looking at the markets anyway like you were saying you know you're looking at the markets and that. That tweet was part of your process of looking at the markets for your newsletter. So, you know, it's a similar thing for what we're doing, isn't it, Andrew? That, you know, we're, yeah. we're watching the markets and we're writing about them for stop, clients. Stop plugging yourself, Matt. <laughs> but well, the, the, the other rule that I had from, uh, from very early on, and particularly when I uh, started writing for Rural Press, I always had my phone number and email publicly available for everyone across the country or across the world if that's where it went. And um, if anyone took the trouble to ring me up, whether they were a client or not a client, I talked to them. I never, I never said, oh, I can only tell that to my clients. Whatever question they asked, I answered. Um, some clients used to ring me a lot and I would, I would spend a lot of time with them. Other clients would never ring. I, strategically, it was uh, the fact that I never charged um, after-sales service fee whether it was uh, on the newsletter, um, newsletters or on, on articles that were published. After-sales service was free for everyone. The, the other trick I had in terms of the technology was that I never, ever charged anyone for distribution. So in the early days when it was fax-based, you know, a local call was 15 cents. Um, the one that went over to, uh, to the UK used to cost $5.00. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, interstate ones might have been 50 cents. I never charged, I never charged a distribution thing. I made a, a very small margin on the uh, overseas ones and a, a really healthy margin on the local call ones. But that meant that when email came along, um, you know, people were asking for a discount. Oh, it's email. 
um, I could say, well, I've never charged you for distribution anyway. So when I go to email, it makes no difference. What it allowed me to do, though, was to get rid of that $120,000 a year fax telephone uh, <laughs> bill. And, um, and so I didn't have to put up the price of the newsletter for a number of years, and yet my, my bottom line kept on improving simply because of, of being able to uh, adopt the, uh, the New technology. technology. The, point I was, the point I was trying to make before, before Andrew suggested I was doing a plug, was actually around the giving, of, so giving something for free, even if it's legitimate. Do you, did you ever find that people still look for where's the catch? Like, how, did you ever have that as an issue? Not really. I, th- I think there was um, a lot of people thought that they could look at the stuff that was given freely, which was primarily the rural press articles, and they thought they were getting the, the whole truckload. I can tell you, um, those articles were 450 words. Uh, some of my newsletters were thousands of words. I mean, there was just so much packed into those newsletters each week that um, our clients knew that they that they needed more than what was in the in the in the rural press. But um, yeah, but the trick was to to um, value or price price all of that information at a level that was easily affordable and represented a great customer value proposition. And uh, yeah, that's that's it. Always it's always about the customer. You have to have the best possible proposition for the customer at all times. Um, and if you can't do that within a viable business model, find something else to do. One of the, one of the things that like you put yourself out there, yeah. Every time you like every time you write an article, you're putting yourself out there, yeah. Mm. Have you ever had a time? And I'm assuming you have, because because we have. When you write something and somebody just doesn't agree with it, and have you ever had that? Have you ever been challenged on your on your on your views? Oh yes. Um, in fact, uh, I. You've failed. You have failed if um, you don't get people challenging your views. And I, I, I it, it's a great outcome when people challenge your views because you have made them think about what you're writing about. Hmm. You've made them think. They have to make up their own mind. They have made up their mind that they do not agree. And that is the best possible outcome. Um, so hopefully, you know, they can make up their mind to agree as well, to, don't just accept it. But it does mean that people have actually had to Think about it and say, yes, I agree, or no, I don't agree. And if you're not triggering that response, then you, you fail. I mean, I, I guess the, the more um, serious ones were, um, you know, when the, when the um, disagreement comes by a, uh, a someone issuing you a summons on your front door. And that has happened. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, oh, look, um, or it, and, and some of the absolute classics over the years were... Um, um when and, and I'd be very cooperative and I'd say, yeah, yeah, okay, look, I'll 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 retract that, I'll write the apology. And so a week later, you know, the, the front page of the newsletter would be taken up with this massive retraction and apology. And the reader said, Yep, he was right. He hit the nail on the head because he's had to uh, issue this grovelling apology. <laughs> and so they knew they knew there was something there. Look, I might not have got it quite right. But they knew that uh, that it, it but, hit a nerve. And, but, mo- um, but most people know that you can, well, nobody gets it right every time. No. And and it's and what they're doing is they're paying for your view, not not for a perfect view, but just your experience over time. Yeah. And informed view. Yeah, and, and it was you. good because um, it actually opened doors because um, the the very top of the organisations of the the grain marketing organisations and the um, 
and the bulk handlers actually started to open their doors to me and they invited me down to, to sit with the CEOs and the senior executives and we would talk through talk through things. They wanted to know how I was thinking. They wanted to know what I was going to write. They didn't agree with what I was writing. Cool heads within a lot of those organisations said, don't worry about it. Um, you know, the growers are sophisticated enough to work it out for themselves. Um, but, you know, never shut off the, the communication. So, so I found myself talking with these people a lot and, um, and, and meeting with them. And I suddenly felt a little bit inadequate. So that actually triggered me to go back to university. And I did an MBA because I wanted the corporate experience so that I felt um, uh, justified in being able to spend time with these people and, and talk with them. I, I did not have that corporate experience from working. I had to buy it off the shelf. So I spent, I don't know, 20 grand in two years of my precious life doing an MBA just so that I could be... Um, feel in my for myself that I, I had a right to, to be talking in. to these people about these industry issues and so on. So that was another little personal anecdote, I, I guess. But, um, yeah, but that that people not agreeing, it, it triggered all of these responses, which I think were very good outcomes for the industry as a whole in the end. Yeah. In terms of, like, you... I had a discussion with with uh, somebody the other day about a similar sort of topic about analysts. I, I'm not a fan of the term senior analyst. <laughs> I, I said to I said to a friend of mine, oh, says, and I get paid more. Well, but but but, I've, but he much prefers market expert, don't you? No, I hate the word expert as well. <laughs> but 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 I was talking to a guy a guy in the US uh, out in Kansas, and I was sort of saying, well, you're a junior analyst, right for your career. In my view, like personally, mm. you're just an analyst. You're not a senior analyst. You're not a junior analyst. You're just an analyst because you don't know everything. And like we all know that you, you gain experience over time. But the reality is that every year is different. It's, it's an iterative process. And I, I still sort of see myself like I'm still relatively young, but I still see myself as a junior. And I reckon I'll see myself as a junior when I'm 55. When I'm when I'm sixty, yeah. because no, because I'm yeah. still every single day I look at the market, and this I love markets. Matt loves markets, and you love markets. I look at the market, and I'm learning every single day. Oh, and, absolutely, and, uh, a absolutely, and um, I, I agree with exactly what you said. And I I've done everything. Um, it was only when I was uh, with NZX in uh, Melbourne that I actually had um, other people working on the team, but it. But it was a team, and and they I would do I would do the the base number crunching um, in the same way that they would. Um, you know, we we we'd, we'd share we'd share the work. So there was there was really no um, no difference in in uh, what we did. But you're absolutely correct. Every day uh, you start with a blank sheet and you look at the market, and it's the depth of knowledge that becomes built up inside you that that allows you to move forward from a blank page every day. One reason why I'm retiring, I, I used to start a, a newsletter and all my news articles, I still do, with an absolutely blank page. I walk in at 9 o'clock, no, 7.30 in the morning. If I'm doing a newspaper article, I walk in 7.30 in the morning. The first thing I do is open up last week's file, delete what was in it and start writing. I go in with no plan. Occasionally, that means that I, I finish a newsletter and send it out and said, oh, geez. Uh, I should have put that in this week's newsletter, but, um, but not too often, not too often. So, um, 
so that's that's just the the way it is. I think the this it's just experienced analysts and less experienced analysts because the longer you you've been, you've been in the job, the more you know, but you don't actually realise you know that until you look back and say, oh, the reason I could built that out in in an hour this morning is just because it's it's there. It's a bit. It's a bit like I, I, I was looking at the drought map. Today, like just as an anecdotal example, like oh, yeah. drop, the drop map for for today for the US. Yeah. Then I was thinking back, what was it like in 2012? And you sort of start to think, well, US is drought, and you start to, and you're looking back at previous experiences you had. But again, I still would say it's a learning process. You're always learning and thinking. Yes, you can go back to that time that you actually experienced it. Yeah. But, but it's still learning. so. I guess that comes from my 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 sort of. Next question or next point. I think if your well, approach what, what, if your approach is that you think you know more than anyone else or you know you're smarter than the market, that's when oh, you're, about not. Re- you're about ready no. to cop you get about ready to cop hiding, right? I, I go into every single presentation I do, I go at every single article I write, I think of it as being I know less than everyone else that's reading it. And and I go into it thinking, well, I don't want anyone to pick holes in it, so you know, I don't assume knowledge, and I, and I, yeah. I and I want it to be to be right. Like I, I lack a lot of confidence when it comes to presenting, and I, and I wouldn't want to be seen. Oh, you're smarter than everyone else in the room because you're definitely not. And no, and be prepared. Yeah, I've run it the same way. So, and also when when I have an opinion, and out of that opinion comes, well, this is what I think you should do. I have always to ask the question, what if I'm wrong? So I have always had to then formulate what the answer would be if I was wrong. So, like, we say, um, we say uh, make a, might be something simple. Yeah, we reckon you should make a forward sale. Now, what if, what if that turns out to be uh, to be the wrong call? Then, uh, then you always know what 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 needs to happen next. And and sometimes you say, well, geez, I don't know what happens next. So. Okay, make a forward sale, but um, whack a call option against it. Turn it into a minimum price contract, you know, with the with a call option, something like that, and that'll that'll cover all bases. You'll get a damn good price. You'll spend a bit of money on some insurance, but if the market goes up, you still clip the ticket. That might be the response, or a bit like um, we sell uh, that we hit some record price levels in early two thousand and seven. Never been there before, so we said sell. This is the highest it's ever been. Now by the end of the year, you're um, you know eighty bucks or hundred bucks a ton. Um, out of the money but you know what to do okay the market's gone up 100 bucks sell it again yep. make another port sale at 100 bucks more than you got last year kick the can down the road participate in the rally in the market just 12 months after everyone else you still get that you still get it you still get the, the the high prices you might just get it 12 months after everyone else average over time yeah yeah and oh. so um so, so going back to back to junior analysts. So Matt and I are, are junior analysts. Matt's a, a meat analyst, and I'm a I guess a, a grains and wool analyst as well. Actually, sometimes. What would be your tip for us as 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 junior analysts for the next for the next twenty years of our career? Um, just uh, if if your memory is not good and it doesn't uh, stay good. Like in the early days, I could I could remember the price. I could remember every price a week on that day. I just I'd have a photographic memory of who was paying what price, best price for the day. I lost that after after a while. You just get you just get too much stuff in your brain. So you've got to have good databases, and you have to you have to do something with those databases. So one of the um, 
one of the suggestions you made that I should do in retirement is write a book. Well, I've actually just done that. I have actually just written a book, finished it yesterday. It's going to hit the emails to my clients very shortly. It's about 30 pages long. It's a history of wheat prices from 1994 to 2022. And it's probably got 500 charts in it. Um, it's got um, deciles. It's got frequencies. It's got probabilities. It's got a whole freaking truckload. And... Um, and if you, if you regularly put together something like that, then you don't have to remember, but you can, you can say, oh, yeah, something rather happened back then. So, for example, when this, uh, when this thing in, in uh, um, Russia and Ukraine took off, I could tell you within a couple of minutes what the previous record futures price was, the day it happened, US cents a bushel, Aussie dollars a tonne, and it's because you actually just keep updating and looking at those databases and, and periodically putting it into a form which you can just grab it off the shelf. I'm, a, I'm a still a bit of a book man. Yep. So every, although everything's computerised, I, I have a book and I'll show you. I mean, this is one I did in um, whatever year it is, yep. 2011. It's probably the last one I did. And it's just full of stuff like that. Okay. Parts and little explanations. And that's effectively what I've just done. I, I used to do this for every grain. Um, I used to do it for across states if I had the data. But it just becomes a, you know, you know you're a 30-page book, but if you can't remember it, you can just go and grab it and you and that'll lead you to where in your computerised database you need to go to verify that what you're saying is still correct. So the, 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 the encyclopedia of grains. Yep. Check, check, check and check again and... Um, if you make a claim and it doesn't turn out to be quite right, you know, like you say, oh, you know, this is the record price, you think a day later, you think, oh, geez, I, I actually got that wrong by XYZ. You work out whether it's a material mistake. If it's not material, move on. If it is material, face up to it and say, oh, I actually got that wrong and, uh, you know, whatever. But you've somehow, as, as an analyst, if you're going to go the long term, you need to be able to um, understand and, and draw from what happened back in the day. So, for example, from 2000 and, oh, so from 1991 to 2007, there was a very strong seasonality in annual wheat prices. It used to be high at the beginning of the year, you know, it used to peak on either Australia Day through to Anzac Day. Then it would drop away into the Northern Hemisphere harvest. Then it would rally out of the Northern Hemisphere harvest ahead of our harvest. Then it would drop into our harvest as the Southern Hemisphere put harvest pressure on. You could, you could trade. You could trade that. You could risk manage that. So we used to um, forward sell um, half the crop physical in you know, that March-April period, um, uh, cover the other half with a put option. You'd be 100% of your expected yield covered into the middle of the year. In the middle of the year, your July puts had, had run out. And you either clipped the ticket or you, or you didn't. And then you so you'd sell your put options and you would replace them with bought call options so that you were still risk managed on half your crop for the second half of the year. But, um, but you'd, you know, so first half of the year, you'd be 100% covered, second half of the year when you're expecting the market to recover, you're half covered. And then if in the middle of the year the market went up, that's because there was a real problem in the Northern Hemisphere and you could sit back and do nothing for the rest of the year because, um, you know, if in July, uh, July or August the market's hit a top, it means there's a problem and that problem can't go away. The season's over. 
that all broke down in 2007 onwards. And so in this late, latest book I've got, I, I can show you the charts of how it was before then and how it's been since. But you're the analyst. You tell me what happened from 2007 onwards that would have changed it. Ethanol? No. No. Russia. Russia, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. prior to 2007, Russia was a bit player, producing 30 or 40 million tonne. They had virtually nothing to export. Then suddenly they got the 50 million tonne, then 55, then, 50, then 60. They started yeah. to export. Ukraine started to export. And so suddenly, I mean, I'm not smart. It was pointed out to me by the CEO of Grain Corp. We were having a conversation one day and uh, he said, oh, the whole market's driven by Russia. And I said, oh. Really? Oh, okay. So I went, and this is in about 2010, 11, whatever, a few, you know, a few years after. And I went back in and started looking at it, and he's absolutely right. So all of these mid-year price rallies that we get has been, um, you know, 2010 was the classic drought in Russia. Yep. Drought in Russia. Or Russia's going to impose an export tax. So it's either geopolitical or, or seasonal, but all centred on Russia. And, and as we now know, Black Sea, 29% of global exports. Um, so it's actually the point where America lost the lost importance. One, yep. And it got taken over aggressively by the, the Black Sea. Now, though, we're now at a point where it wouldn't surprise me if we, well, who knows with the, the current turmoil, it wouldn't surprise me if we actually backtrack back into a more traditional seasonal price pattern. We've actually seen that emerge over a couple of years, but that old trading pattern disappeared for. A decade or more. And that's probably one of the reasons why we lost some of our, our skills, the, the old skills that we used and that honed no longer applied, didn't apply in the in this Black Sea-dominated wheat market. So, yeah, it's interesting. But you got to, as an analyst, you, you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to have your database and access it and look at it and dream it, understand it, talk it, write about it. And uh, at the end of that process, you will just know what you're talking about. Mel, looks like the um, the passion's clearly still there for the market. So are you going to miss it? <laughs> um, oh, I don't think I will miss it. I, I, I have walked away from the wool market. I walked away from the wool market the day I wrote my last wool newsletter. The only reason I still kept getting uh, prices in was that I had a couple of wool clips sitting in my wool shed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'd, I'd, I'd not, from not, not from nineteen not from nineteen ninety, were they? No, no, no. Those ones got stolen, actually. <laughs> um, no, but uh, no. Look, I think I think I'll just uh, I'll just have to find something else to do. I am involved in local government, so maybe that's where I'll uh, I'll. It won't, it won't be like that scene in in is it, is it Godfather? <laughs> just when I thought I was out, they pulled me, pull me back in. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've had no time to watch movies for thirty years, so I don't. Know what <laughs> you got you got you got a lot to catch up on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe that maybe that's the next thing is a Netflix account. And, yeah, uh, yeah, well, no, we've already got that actually. But you know, <laughs> talking about technology, um, I got a laptop computer in I don't know when a laptop first emerged, and it cost me ten grand for this bloody thing, and it didn't even have Windows on it and a little portable printer and a mobile phone in a shoebox. 
that's before your time, you guys. So we had bricks that we'd carry around as mobile phones. Oh, I'm old enough to I admit to the, my first phone being a brick. Yeah, so so that technology actually allowed me to go uh, to do it from anywhere in the world. So anywhere in the world meant anywhere in Australia or in New Zealand from a very early time. And, um, yeah, um, so, so all of that... And the cost of all of that technology has come down, of course, but uh, that, that whole mobile technology. And I can remember going to an ABS conference in, uh, in Canberra and my mate and I were sitting out on the, uh, on the pavement having dinner one night and he had his bag phone and I had mine. He was actually an international grain broker and he had a partner in London. They used to do the 12-hour handover. And so here you are sitting on the side of the street, no wires, talking to the guy in London handing over the business and then my phone's ringing and I'm talking to a, a grower or someone in the industry from anywhere in Australia and you sit back and it was quite surreal to think that we were able to suddenly able to do all this without having to be tied to a physical place and uh yeah and now it's now it's an overdrive yeah you've got an iPhone with everything on it it's just yep. crazy so mm. well look Mark we've taken up a lot of your time and uh, like I really, again, you're a trailblazer in, in this industry. And like at the end of the day, I, w- I was talking to, to, to another guy in the industry who did it similar to us and saying, well, what we do wouldn't be possible if you hadn't started what you did in 1990. Mm. And, mm. And, and, and the transparency of the marketplace in Australia. Look, somebody else might have come along and done it, but, but you did it. You were first. Mm. And it's, it's allowed a lot of changes in the industry so so we we, we a we thank you for for for, for doing it uh, and look we hope you have a, a good retirement and look i imagine you'll be like you, you might still have a, a little look at what's happening in the marketplace every now and then and if you ever want to come on a podcast and have a have a yarn about what's happening <laughs> uh, you know give us a bell yeah no thank you very much it's been uh it's been good uh talking about it and i hope it's uh hope it's useful Absolutely. Yeah, it's been it's been fabulous. Thanks for thanks for affording your time on a on a day that's probably quite busy for you, um, batting away calls and whatnot. But um, yeah, good luck with your retirement and um, and thanks for coming on and see you when you got nothing on. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Thanks Ciao for now. Thank you. Bye.